Welcome to Dad, I'd Like to Friend. I'm your host, Kevin Selden, and if this is your first time joining us, please do not forget to subscribe. In prepping for today's interview, I began doing some research on my guest, like I usually do. But surprisingly, there was very little about him on the interweb, or anywhere for that matter, except for one story that I found about a guy who had a talent for writing in youth, but ultimately gave up on his dreams until he got into some legal troubles in his early 20s and was forced to teach screenwriting to a group of misfit kids where he refound his passion and went on to great success. I mean, that's a great flippin' story. So I brought it up in our pre-interview. And my guest kindly let me know that that was actually the plot to The Mighty Ducks. You see, this top Hollywood screenwriter rarely gives interviews and is traditionally a very private individual. So when the studio he was writing for asked for a bio, he obliged, using the plot from arguably one of the greatest sports movies of all time. And yet, for someone who considers himself to be extremely private, I think you'll find the following interview to be one of the most vulnerably honest and fascinating discussions I've ever had on the show. Let's dive in. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kevin. So in our pre-interview, I know there was one topic that was particularly intriguing for you. I was really interested in a couple of conversations I heard on your podcast that got into the intersectionality of fatherhood and modern masculinity. Yeah. Because I find most forms of modern masculinity in America to be really problematic and, and upsetting. And um, so that, that's a thing that I think about a lot. Yet you write action movies. Yeah. You know, I grew up one of very few Chinese kids in my neighborhood and a big part of my identity growing up was trying really hard to pretend I wasn't Chinese because it brought either negative attention or when it wasn't negative attention, it was just a matter of when I looked at the media around me as a kid um, and I didn't have access to a ton of media. My parents were not putting me in front of the TV very often. I didn't have cable. I didn't watch movies. Oh, fascinating. Um, but when I got to be the age where you start to go to your friends' houses and you start seeing what is cool I'll tell you what not cool at that time was Asian faces anywhere to be seen. And that is still the case. And so the messaging that that sends when you're a little Asian boy is you aren't cool. You can't be a superhero. You can't be a movie star. You can't be a rock and roll star. You can't be an NFL player. You can't, you'd like none of the things that America valued at that time had space for Asian faces. And so I read that as great. I, I'll just lean more towards the, the part of my heritage that is not Chinese. My last name is Callahan, and I'm just going to be the California kid and not think about it too much. And where that led was I started getting very drawn to a fantasy life of being very into professional wrestling and 80s action movies. You know, my childhood was spent watching guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and just wishing I was them. Not only as big and ripped as them, but like literally wishing I was white. And I would say that when I ended up years later writing and jobs started getting offered to me to write action movies, it was very easy for me to do because I had a lot of experience imagining that I was a jacked white guy, which sounds crazy, but it's what I was forced to do because there was never space for me to imagine that I was a cool Asian guy. 
wasn't an option. It, it, I did not see that as a possibility. And it worked. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I got work, and at the time, that, those were the stories being told predominantly. I wrote a number of movies featuring some of those types of guys about big macho dudes shooting guns and punching things. It was easy for me. It wasn't foreign to me. I wasn't pretending to understand that mindset, but it also wasn't honest to the stories that I think I ultimately needed to tell and that I wanted to tell. And so get long-winded way of getting back to the question, what's been very lucky for me is my career has coincided with an era in which changes started to happen. You know, and now I'm getting to write, I'm right, finishing up work right now on a movie for Marvel, which is their first Asian-led superhero movie. So this is, this is the thing that when I was a boy, I needed. This is literally the first time it's ever happened, and I've been very lucky enough to timed out in such a way that I'm in the right place at the right time. And for me, emotionally, it's a dream come true because I'll, I'll tell you this, very first time I sat down to write, a couple of days in, I just started crying. And I cry over a lot of things, so that's not particularly unusual, but um, <laughs> I, I couldn't figure out what was going on with me emotionally. And what I realized was this was the first time in my life I was writing a perspective I actually understood. You know, mm. every time I had done it before, okay, close your eyes. What would it be like to be Chris Hemsworth? I bet it's fucking awesome. And now I'm writing, a, you know, and I've never written a movie for Chris Hemsworth, but that's just an example of for so long, certain types of people that I was not are being presented on screen. And I am, yeah. as a writer, I have to write those movies because that's what's available to me to stay, stay employed. And so, you know, my job was to imagine a version of reality that was not my reality. And this was the first time I was writing a scene where the character, um, having experiences that are not entirely unlike the experiences I had as a, as a child, right? I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I'm finally getting to do this and put this out there. So that's a long-winded way of saying the armor brought me to the table, but now it feels like I'm being allowed to take it off and be vulnerable and be my true self. And I'm professionally only being rewarded for that, which is a really encouraging thing, I think. But that ties into a deeper thing because my daughter is quarter Chinese, but presents as fully white. She, you would not think that she was Chinese. Right. We still educate her about the fact that she's Chinese. Her grandmother uh, is, was born in China and looks very Chinese. And Charlie refers to her by the Chinese name for grandmother. And you know She knows about stuff, but it's a, it's a tricky thing because I have this constant pull inside of me of feeling like I'm glad that she's not Chinese because now she won't have to deal with some shit. Right. But that's an incredibly sad thing to feel about your child. Yeah. Because I want her to be all the things that she is. And I want her to understand the, the cultures, not only that she represents, but like my story and my mother's story are very based in being Chinese. And so I'd like her to be able to relate to that. Anyway. But I think that is so well said because so many of us want our children to not face adversity, but oftentimes the adversity is what grows them into incredible and unique individuals. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty confident that the reason I am whatever version of myself I am right now, which is a version of myself that I'm more or less happy with and, and certainly happy with in terms of my ability to provide and be present and a lot, you know, both emotionally and professionally and all the things that are, we are is because of 
being like the one Chinese kid at the school and the trauma that that caused and then the reaction that I had to it. I mean, if you look at me, all of this stuff is because I was the Chinese kid at school. This like the tattoos, you know, like the whole presentation is I'm actually tough. Leave me alone. Please stop picking on me, you know, even though you're a softie on the inside. Well, that's the thing you were talking about when you were the first year, however long you went, where you were not being accepted by the the moms and whatnot. When I didn't have that experience early, but once we got into preschool, it took me a long time before anyone would talk to me. And when they finally did and they realized, like, I'm actually very nice, I think, I'd like to think, they would just tell me, like, oh, yeah, we just all assumed you were the scary dad. <laughs> And I do recognize that there's like sort of a weird intentional paradox between the way I visually present and the way that I like emotionally present. But maybe that's something that can be self-realized by a lot of people. For me, it wasn't. It was I spend a lot of time in therapy. And one of the lessons we explored around different elements of how therapy was going to work for me. And one of the elements that we seized on was me understanding, because it is true to who I am, that I should explore the idea more of just telling people how I feel, being vulnerable, sitting in that, expressing it, being open about it instead of, you know, I, I, I don't want to be overgeneralized, but I think that men sometimes in our culture are expected to be stoic and never let them see a sweat, right? Like that kind of thing. And this radical experience I had a couple of years ago was what if you just every time you sweat, you tell them why you're sweating, you know? And Allow yourself to be honest. Tell someone how you're feeling. Tell them why you're hurting. And every single time I've done that, and I, I got to be honest, like it, it, it makes me uncomfortable almost every time I do it because you feel like you've been trained. Don't don't let people in. Don't show your weaknesses. Don't they're going to hurt you even now? They know how to hurt you, right? You're just all you're doing is showing showing them, but. That has not borne out to be the case. And everybody I've been very honest with, not just at home, but someone professionally where I I have an experience and I don't like the way it feels and I let somebody who I'm not that close to know, this is why it brought me closer to them. They appreciated that I was doing that, that I was being that honest. They understood immediately and implicitly that for me to get to a point where I was clearly uncomfortable to say these things, I must be feeling something. And that made them less defensive. It made me less defensive. And then we'd have good dialogues. It has always worked out well. And again, it's not always been pleasant. And um, it, ch- it does challenge you, or in this case, yeah. me, uh, what I think of myself and how masculine I am or what my role is supposed to be as a strong figure. But uh, I, I guess the way I would sum this up is my therapist would always tell me, like, your strength is feminine strength. So when you are being vulnerable and letting people see your weaknesses, that is actually strong, which is a really hard thing for me to get my head around. I understand it now, but it has been, it has borne itself out as the truth where I come out in a better place. And therefore that must mean that it was a strong thing to do. I absolutely love that. And I think it relates not only to work and to people you encounter, but to making friends in adulthood, which is a freaking difficult thing to do, you know? And to keeping friends. I mean, that, exactly. like, I'm sure we could go off on this whole other thing, but I also struggle a lot with what it is to keep male friends as we get older. And it's no longer 
my lifestyle is not just let's go out for beers and watch sports anymore. Right. Now we're, we have to relate around more quote unquote real things. And I am finding that to, to maintain the friendships that I cherish the most in my life, the, you know, the long-term friendships, I'm having to be much more vulnerable with those people because a lot in my twenties, it was like my best friends from college. We'd get together on the weekend. Never once would anybody ask, how are you really doing? <laughs> or, you know, how do you feel about what's going on with this, that, or the other thing? And now it is almost exclusively those conversations that is keeping us close. But that it wasn't easy. I mean, imagine me as a kid. I was a teenager who literally only wanted to have those conversations. Oh, you must have like, driven. Who are you? People must have been like, what? Kevin is so annoying. They just, they ran and then were like secretly, um, what, can I talk about feelings? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, right. Because ultimately at any age, deep down our souls know, oh, they checked in. And that felt good. I'm surprised to see how good that. I've been told that you're not supposed to do that, but it felt good. So I think I'd like to keep, you know. I think it's just a beautiful example. It Down the line, they may not grasp it right now as toddlers, but it will help us to connect with our kids. It will help us to keep the relationship with our partners romantic and not business as, as our kids get older. It, it's not just about friendship. It's a rule for every relationship in your life. I will say, I mean, the openness of just sort of being willing to say, hey, I need this from you right now has been critical to my relationship since our daughter came into our lives. You know, I'm sure it would have been helpful when we didn't have a daughter, but when there was more time to just be the two of us, it didn't seem as critical. But now it's easy to get into that thing where you're just ships passing in the night and like you're just passing off a baton and the baton is the kid. And sometimes that happens, but... You know, and I'll be wrapped up in work or super focused only on my daughter. And my wife will sometimes pull me aside and say, hey, I need some us or I need you to do this for me to make me feel this, you know. And, and at first it felt bad to hear that because I just felt like, oh, I'm failing. I'm, you know, my, my self-doubt would creep back in. But what I've realized is with, with a kid in the picture, it's just why would that be a bad thing to just be honest as long as we both understand that's what's happening? I, I love that because I think that addresses everything we've discussed in our pre-interview. Most people have a tendency when that occurs to get defensive yeah. or to push it under the rug and ignore it or run. And that is the opposite. And you're going to get the opposite effect. Yeah. You know, facing yeah. it head on is how you overcome it. And when you think about it from an intellectual standpoint, it makes sense. But I think our we are trained as individuals to do the opposite. Well, we are trained to hear you're doing this thing wrong. When, when you know, when my wife says, "I need more physical attention from you," or "I need you to listen to me talk about my day right now," whatever the thing is, it can be many different things. I've literally said this to my wife before by the way. Yeah. I think, I th- and it probably depends on what your love language is. And, and ours are really different. So it's not my instinct sometimes to do some of these things. So then when she says, I need this from you, I, I will say, certainly there's a defensiveness where, you know, my, my knee jerk might be, what are you talking about? I listen to you all the time, you know, which is not nice, a nice way to respond to that. But it, it is a thing you, most people tend to respond with, or at least internally think, must defend. Must defend. You know? Like, yeah, don't. I'm. I'm great. I'm doing. I'm doing the best I can. Um, what you realize, hopefully, what I sometimes realize, at least, is, it's actually not about me failing. 
It's just about this is the balance of life that we're in now. When I tell her I need some alone time or I need this or I need that, it's I have to put myself in her shoes and remember like when I do this to her, it's never about her and it's never about her failings or her not giving me something. It's about you're busy, I'm busy, and we have a kid. And we're when at the end of my workday and your workday, anything left in the reservoir typically goes to our daughter. That is like human nature. That is parental nature. Right. So how, in our daughter's case, she's maybe in bed 7.30. How at 7.30 do I close that door? The reservoir is fully empty now. But I need to find a way to get 10% of it back and, and, and give that to you. We can't just go to bed now and you know not have checked in. I feel like when your reservoir gets so low after parenting, especially if it's like stuff where you know your 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 child's at the age where maybe you're still dealing with like the broken cookie cry or something like that where you know like the meltdown will happen over a thing that makes no fucking sense to you as an adult and it's just like oh my gosh and it could be 2 hours long. And at the end of that because you know I was saving that blank piece of paper and you threw it out and now your world is exploding. And at the end of a day like that, you get them down. You, it's so common and understandable to have nothing left. And yeah. so I'm not going to be looking after a day like that for your problems. I'm not going to be like, wonder what Kevin needs right now. I should be thinking that way, but it's just not always possible. So I find it very helpful to be able to tell somebody, it's like, I don't expect that of her and she doesn't expect it of me. I got to tell you, you've had a long day. I need to tell you about this one thing. Yeah. And carve out the time to connect that's separate, like on, on a Saturday night, setting that hard boundary you did with work with your own personal relationships, I think is a great thing to try. I would love to you do know? more of that. I, one of your podcasts I listened to, the, the guest was talking about how he, him and his wife, I think they made some sort of like pretty hard and fast rule about date time or weekend time where they would get away every certain amount of time. And I know that's not uncommon. And I do remember listening to that. Ah, man, that sounds really healthy and good. Um, I do like the idea of it. Now, that brings up an interesting topic that I think is, is kind of a crucial topic for today's day and age, which is self-care. I mean, for someone who has a wife, has a daughter, has a demanding career, it's hard to rip yourself away. Do you have any kind of self-care routine that sustains you? Do you what do you do for yourself? For just me? For just you. I don't think I'm great at this. And that's the same with almost everyone I've ever interviewed, by the way. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm great at identifying hobbies or interests. I don't know why. It, it, if I say it out loud, it seems like, well, if you know that you're not great at identifying interests, what are your interests? I don't know. I feel really stupid saying that. But like, <laughs> I just generally, as a, since I've become a parent, I don't know what my interests are other than I spend all of my time working. And anytime I'm not working... My family gets me, and I don't know really what the parts of me are that are going to be left when this is over. I, I think that so many of us as parents feel that way, that we become parents instead of, you know, humans who happen to be parents. And I know my parents just retired, and, and they don't really have hobbies. And I feel like it got Laura and I talking about what should hobbies be. We should start them now. And I was like, well, you're my hobby. And Laura's like, that's not okay. Yeah, that's not helping. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's you. That's similar to my experience. My wife is she. She will just come up. She's just always got projects. Always got projects. She has so many passions, and my passion seems to be just supporting her passions. But I know, I know from a therapeutic standpoint that that is not uh, 
ultimately healthy. So uh, I'm still looking for it, you know. We'll continue that discussion. I think that's a good one. Okay, so that leads me to another question. And this is something that I think goes hand in hand with what we were discussing in the pre-interview about removing the armor and the stigmas regarding anxiety and, and being a human and just as a parent in general. And I feel like for me, a lot of season two is about this one mantra that I tried to do when we were struggling to get pregnant. And it was, I'm enough without a kid. And I had so much trouble with it. It was like, I'm not enough without a kid. You know, nothing's worth it. And I struggled with it. I then tried to do I'm enough without my career. And it was like, nope, that's not can't do that. Because like, I would hide behind the armor of my clients listing off these high profile clients made me worthy. And it took so much for me to release that and say, I'm enough as a human, I Kevin is enough. And I'm also a good dad, but I'm not defined by it. And I'm curious what happens when you get to a certain level of success is that just becomes what I've seen harder and harder to not wear your successes as your armor. And I'm wondering if that is ever something that you've struggled with, if it's ever started to define your identity and taken away your individual, I mean, a little in your 20s. Yeah, I, I early in my career, I was very, because I broke in at a fairly young age, I was so convinced I was just the fucking absolute shit. I I did it. I'm young. Uh, You know, I I was making more money, certainly, than I was as an assistant. (laughs) And uh, I got a little ahead of myself. And I think, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in terms of how I carried myself and the kinds of work that I did how I prioritize things. I just feel very lucky that I did break in when I was young. And the reason for that is I see a lot of people who break in as writers in their mid-30s, which is around the more typical point because you have to grind for so long and then get into their heads and let it define them. And then they start pissing people off. And now you're 40 and you're being an asshole. And there's not a lot of tolerance for that. And there's not a lot of time to bounce back for that. When you're 22 and you fuck up and you spend a couple of years not being able to get work or the jobs that you get aren't coming together. And that gave me a lot of time to sit back. And that had a big moment of sitting back and doing a self audit, which is the first time I'd ever done it. And been like, is it possible that the problem is me? It's the first time I ever asked myself that question. And it turned out that the answer was yes, the problem was me. <laughs> because surprise, surprise, the one commonality in all of these things that weren't going right was me. Um, and then it was you know, humiliating and embarrassing. And I, I met with everybody I'd ever worked with and, and, and uh, had I had, to whom I had behaved in a way that I felt was not optimal to who I want to be. I told them I felt that way and I was vulnerable to their face, which makes some people very uncomfortable and made me even more uncomfortable. And then I got my career back. So now because I had that experience early, I have been, it's been easier for me to not let it happen again and to not define myself by the moments of success. Because what I've discovered is, Anytime I'm really feeling myself, and it certainly happens still, and it, if I get a, a job I'm really excited about, or 
or a cool moment happens where I get to meet somebody or have a meeting or it could be any number of things. Um, this business, like I'm sure all businesses and all of life has a habit of humbling you when you need it. Um, I just try not to get to a point where the commensurate humbling would be like putting me in a ditch. You know what I mean? Like if I'm not a super asshole, hopefully I won't super hit rock bottom. That's sort of how I look at it. So um, yeah, the other thing I would say is being a writer is also, I think, different than being an actor or a director because generally my job is to eat shit. <laughs> so, you know, I get, I get hired to write a cool movie and eventually I get fired. I've gotten, I've, I've been fired in every way possible. My job is, you know, unless the movie gets made and you stay on it the entire time, which um, for the listeners that don't know a lot about Hollywood, it is incredibly rare. And I, I'm quote unquote successful at what I do. And I still get fired off of most of the jobs I get. And those are only the jobs I get. I also fail at getting 75% of the jobs I go up for. So it has, you know, the job has a habit of humbling me before I even get going. Now, how do you relate that to your life as a man and your life as a dad? Do you like to be, I mean, I already know the answer that you are probably okay being vulnerable in front of your daughter, but what is your philosophy on acknowledging these faults? And have you always kind of been Hmm. that way? You know, I would say that it's so far, it's been more about my ability to do that around adults. And because like I said, I was not I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very emotional, um, very sensitive person, but I was not always comfortable allowing other people to understand that or to see that. And now I am, and I'm still working on that. With my daughter, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I have a philosophy around it, but it's a little trickier with her because she's six now. And so she is only just now getting to moments in her life where it's age appropriate to expose her to Trauma is not the right word, but things that are upsetting to me when she's two or three, there's just no context for it. <laughs> it's so funny you say this because I feel like I've, I've shown Wyatt so many of my highs and lows. I'm like, wait, that's not okay? <laughs> well, no, but to be clear, when I'm low and my, and my daughter feels like she's sort of taking after me and both taking after both of us in certain ways, but she's very empathetic. She's very concerned about how other people are feeling. And she's now old enough to, you can't trick her. You can say like, I'm fine, but she knows you're not. She can read you. They are always smarter and more attuned than we think that they are. Yeah. So yeah, if I'm down and it's obvious that I'm down, I'll tell her why I'm down and I'll tell her that I am down. You know, I'm not probably going to get into the specifics with her of, well, I got fired and I found out about it on deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm intrigued to know, having the level of success that you've had in Hollywood, which can be very consuming, I'm curious to know, are there ever times when you have to prioritize work over family? And what is that like for you? I don't want to speak on behalf of all of Hollywood. Fair enough. I will say that the way I have handled it is 99% of the time, I simply don't prioritize work over family. That is so impressive. There are times where scripts are due, and after my daughter goes down, I come back outside. And by outside, my, my office is separated from the house. I don't, yeah. I don't write in the bushes. <laughs> but I'll stay up late and I'll write, which I don't like doing. I did a lot in my 20s, but I'm not in my 20s anymore. It's 
it's hard on my body when I wake up the next day. Oh, and after a, a day with your kid, it's just like the emotional, yeah, it's you know, brutal. So I find a way to make it happen. And I have had, I can't think off the top of my head, moments where I've had to come home from a trip early for something, or I've had to go to do something and missed something. But generally, I refuse. I, I just have really strong boundaries around this. And I don't know where this came from. I didn't set about when, when my daughter was born saying, here's exactly how, how I'm going to do it. I, I didn't do that. I just, my career was changing as my life was changing and I was just balancing. And as, as things went on, I just started to think, I just don't want my daughter to remember any of this as dad wasn't around or dad was too busy. Anytime I can avoid that, I'm going to avoid that. And what I discovered was you can avoid that a lot more than people seem to think you can avoid it. And a good example of that is when I was making the show, uh, the Van Damme show at Amazon, that was the first time I'd ever done TV in as much as whatever that thing was, was TV. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a writer in features, usually I'm not very high on the totem pole and I don't have to be around that much. I just vanish into a hole and produce a script. In TV, the writer's expected to be very involved. I was the showrunner. And early on, Amazon wanted to get on a phone call with me, and it was like 20 people over there. And, and I just think, like, I don't know what this is for, but okay. And they say, we can only do it at 5. And I go, ooh. Well, at 5.30, I'm peeling out because I cook dinner every night, and then I, we both do bedtime every night. Yeah. And I'm going to do that. And they're like, well, this is just one night. you know. And I was like, if we do it at 5.00, and you're telling me it's a half hour call, great, we'll do it, and then I'm gonna leave. But I'm telling you right now, I'm gonna hang up at 5.30. And they said, okay, and then the call starts at like 5.20 because no one shows up on time, and I told them, I'm still hanging up at 5.30. And they just didn't believe me, and I did it, and I hung up at 5.30, I said goodbye, I was polite about it, but I said, this is a thing I told you about. And the day after that, one of the producers of the show pulled me aside, I was like, you can't do that. You cannot do that. That's just like, that's the rule. Like you were saying earlier, that you believe that there are these rules about what you have to do. And he, I got a talking to, and I thought, okay, well, we'll see. And what ended up happening was nothing. And from that moment on, Amazon respected my time a lot more, required nothing new of me. And I realized there's so many people in Hollywood and I understand where this comes from, and I'm in, a, I'm in the position I'm in, which is not the same position as maybe a young writer who can't say no to things as often as I can, but a lot of the pressures that people seem to feel about, I have to prioritize work, and I have to do this, and I have to go to set, and I have, not, not, a lot of that stuff's not real. It's, it's self-designed. Now look, if you're the kind of guy who is looking for the excuse, and you're like, Oh, my fucking family. I hate my family. Oh, honey, I got, I'm so sorry, but they need me in Atlanta for three months. Right. Well, then you'll do it. But I'm not that guy. And yeah, I just have really strong boundaries. I love that. I think that the, the thing that's amazing about that is how analogous it is to parenting with regards to boundaries. I think everything is a slippery slope. And if you don't stay consistent with your boundaries, not only do your children step all over you, but everyone around you will step all over you. You know, like I like phones off on the weekends and that is a really hard thing to keep to. That's awesome. Every complaint my wife had, I got us a landline. I got us a flip phone in case there was an emergency. It was like, give me another excuse. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
once you set up the boundaries and people understand that you're serious about them, this is who you are and this is where you draw the line, it's only benefited my relationship with my wife, with my daughter. Honestly, it's benefited my professional career too because the, now there's an understanding. My people I work with know what I'm about. There's no confusion. They don't take it personally. I've passed on some really cool things that I really wanted to do because of this. I've also, just to be clear, like there are times where a fire got to get put out and I miss dinner. Right. You know, I, I'm, it's not all or nothing, but my goal is just sort of as often as possible. That's where I want my attention because I just, I live with the mindset of, I know this is going fast. When she's 20, I can go make a movie in Europe or something. Hopefully, maybe not, maybe, maybe not, but I'd rather be around now. I love that. I call it the deathbed game. Like, will this matter on your deathbed? Right. I think that there's probably a lot of similarities between toddlers and Hollywood executives in that, you know, like testing boundaries and like seeing how far I can push it. You know? I definitely respect my toddler more than I respect a lot of Hollywood executives. <laughs> it's funny. We have a very interesting dynamic in that my wife likes to wake up in the morning with him. So bedtime and bath time have been very crucial to me. And I've actually had to fight it out because there's times where Laura wants to join, but I know that if Laura's there, I'm nothing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it needs to be me and Wyatt to have that bonding or else it's like mommy, mommy, mommy. And he loves me. But I, I have found that I've had to say, I know it's hard, wife, but I need you to excuse yourself during bedtime or else he's only going to want you. That's interesting. You know? you know, I think I think for us, it's a little bit of the opposite. And I'll just talk about outside of the pandemic life, because right now my wife works from home. She's a marriage and family therapist and she has a private practice. So she would, under normal circumstances, be going to her office during the day where I, being a, a writer, work at home, right. no matter whether it's a pandemic or not. And so... I have a lot more access to my daughter during the day than she does. And so she almost exclusively has always done bath time. And I've gotten in on it a couple of times and I do it when she's not around, but generally that is their thing. And I've never stopped to ask the question of why that is. And I try to make sure it's understood that if she wants a break, that that's available, but that's not usually what happens. And I'm hearing you talk about the need to make sure that there's connection time. And I think that, I think that's probably what's happening is that, I know that I get more time with my daughter, again, normally um, than she does. And so I, I think it's great that she has that time and I understand it entirely. And, you know, she's also, we're getting into that zone of what a father-daughter relationship looks like, what a mother-daughter relationship looks like, how we butt heads differently. You know, like when, when me and my daughter are not getting along, she presents differently to me than she does when she's angry at my wife, all that stuff. It's just so fascinating. I think it's so crucial. And, and I'm realizing this a lot lately because a lot of times there's, there's a part of us that wants to be involved in everything, you know, like the FOMO. And I think that it's so important that we allow individual time for bonding. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. You, you know what else is important, sort of running off of that? And again, I benefit tremendously from having a therapist for a wife. <laughs> and I'm sure I also don't benefit from that sometimes. But <laughs> one of the things I've learned, and maybe this is not the case for everybody, certainly, but I have to give my wife not only the time to bond, I also have to respect the time to fight. And I don't mean, you know, like big blow up fights, but I have a habit where I'm very protective over my wife's feelings, everything. I, you know, I, as non-masculine as I consider myself, and I don't know if this is because of any particular gender, but I do have the desire to protect. And so 
when when the enemy is is my daughter, it's easy when it's a guy yelling in the car at my wife, and I I can just be like, well, fuck you, you, you know. Okay, great, <laughs> super. I have accomplished a ton. I'm such a man. But when the enemy is inside, calling from inside the house, and it's my daughter really giving my wife a hard time, I have a knee jerk to jump in, even if I'm in the other room and I just hear it. It's not my deal. I'll jump in and I'll be like, hey. We're not going to talk to mom that way or, or whatever the version of it is. And it took me a long time, and I'm still not great at this, but my, every single time that would happen, my wife would, uh, afterwards, she would, we would all deal with it. And then in a safe space, she would say, I need you to get more comfortable with allowing those moments to happen between me and her because they are our moments. And your job is not to protect me, dude. You, you, I don't need you. I, I, I know where it's coming from. You don't want to see me struggling. You don't want to see me getting hurt, even if it's at the hands of a child, which is its own different type of hurt. But she has imparted upon me the necessity of allowing her to not only bond, but to struggle by herself, which is interesting. I absolutely, I love that. It is a huge part of this empowerment episode that Laura and I just did. Uh, part of the co-parenting series. I don't know if it will have aired yet when this airs, but we have just noticed that when we try and solve the problems for each other, it doesn't allow for that bonding where like if she's having a fight with him and I come and save the day, well, then it just took away all of her power. Yeah. You know? And I think that is something that I do not see a lot with parents. I think it's very, very astute of Brie. And I think that in many ways, all of us can learn from that lesson. I think that it's important for each parent to kind of be able to learn to come out the other end. I'm sure that there are personality types and parent types where maybe someone, one, one or both parties wants more help or protection in that, in that type of scenario. But I will say, you know, it is so counter to my instincts and that's why I struggle with it so much. Not, it's, and it's not just like about Same with protecting me. or being. I don't like to see people that I like get hurt right. by anybody. And so if I saw a friend in struggling, I'd want to ask, how can I help? Can I jump in? Um, so it, it's, it is an interesting thing to me because it's just the, these are the, the moments that are very outside of what my instincts would be on my own that I have to really learn and listen and, and respect which can be hard when your instinct, your pure like fight or flight is the opposite. It's interesting for both of us that are so not traditionally masculine and don't sign on to those generic traits that are supposedly associated. I feel like I am someone who's a problem solver and where there's a problem, I want to fix it. Yeah. And if my wife's having a problem, I want to go and save the day. But we have found that I have done her a great disservice throughout our 10 years together because I have taken away her confidence in solving the problem for herself. And that is pre becoming a parent. And it was a very big awakening for me. And as soon as we kind of realized it and started to talk more about empowerment, I realized how much it affected us as parents in so many ways. That's so interesting because I've never heard someone word it like that. But we, I think generally most people know or understand implicitly as parents that you're not supposed to do everything and fix everything for your kid because it disallows them from being learning how to solve problems or from, from developing inner strength or whatever the case might be. 
Yet it had right. never occurred to me <laughs> that that should continue through life. But of course it should. Like, why should, you know, I, I mean, I think that there's, when, when you're asked for help, obviously it's fine to help, but it's, it's fascinating to hear you say it because it makes so much sense suddenly through like the lens of parenting. And with, with co-parenting, I feel like the best thing we can do is not have just one person be the bad guy. You know what I mean? I yeah. think it's so crucial that both parents are that united front. And I think I was the sole problem in that for, for a little while for us because I didn't understand it. And so I kept being like, why can't you have stricter boundaries? But I was actually taking away her power to have stricter boundaries yeah. by intervening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I really miss the age that your child is at. Like my, my daughter has like long legs and she's talking back and she's like halfway to teenager. And I'm like, where's my baby? And I remember when I, I was pretty late to my group of friends to have kids, but I'll never forget. I had a, my best friend had his kids when he was like 22 and, um, and I would go visit. And when the kids were like eight or nine, his wife would like try to pick him up and she'd be like, my baby. And I was like, there's, this lady's fucked up. This lady, there's something wrong with this lady. Like, like there, she's a sociopath. And now I'm like, oh, I get it. You just, I just, I'm clinging to all of this stuff because it's happening so fast and she's changing. And I love all the versions of her, but that when they're little and like teetering around and saying really strange things, like uh, I, I do, I do miss that. I mean, I will bring Wyatt over and you can give him a hug and you will see that he will say, no, like that. And he'll be like, Wyatt, big boy. That's like, you know, like he talks back more than anyone. I mean, like he is, I, I, he's a very good kid, but he is definitely, you forget all the tough parts of two when you're like, they were so cute. Well, that's the other thing is you forget all the tough parts of all of it. That's how we're, we're, we're genetically designed to forget so that we can keep putting ourselves through it so we can, you know create more humans, but yeah, it's tricky. I don't know. Okay. So in closing, I, I'm really curious to know how you feel you've evolved as a human since your daughter came into your life. I suppose it might just be that I'm much less interested now in trying to be the things that society seemed to want from me. First year of my daughter's life, I thought I have thrown away the human being that I am. I have completely abandoned everything I've worked for. I've taken my old self behind the woodshed and I, I made him get down on his knees and I shot him in the back of the head, which is true, which is a, a bit dramatic, but I am a writer, but that is something that you do in a sense. But what I didn't realize at the time is, yeah, and then what happens is something new will grow up from that matter. A tree, a flower, that's how organic matter works. Something new will grow there because once you have a kid, ultimately, I, I haven't met a lot of people who wouldn't say that it has shifted their priorities or their views of what's important in the world, right? And so I just don't care anymore about what I'm supposed to be to anybody other than what I'm supposed to be to these two people and to myself, which is a thing you've been talking about in terms of self-identity. I think that is beautiful and something I hope we can all aspire to. Dave, you are a pleasure. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you're still here, then you probably heard that Dave has written the first Asian-led superhero movie for Marvel. So in celebration of that film and Marvel's tradition of dropping teasers at the end of their shows and movies, we thought we'd let you in on a cool contest giveaway we'll be hosting shortly on our Instagram. To enter, all you have to do is answer the following question. 
If your parenting journey was made into a movie, what would it be called? So get started on your answers now and check out our Instagram at DILF Podcast to win some cool prizes. Until next time. Yeah.